0: All right, brothers and sisters, hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is the 7th of March, 2010. And oh my God, we have an explosion of sunshine up here in Canada. Everybody's coming out of their homes like bears after a long hibernation. And uh, we were out chatting with our neighbors. So it's like, we, you know, in Canada, you have neighbors half the year. And the other time, you have people in cars waving at you from behind frosted glass. And that's about the best that you can do. But, um, yeah, we were out. And uh, the street was very busy because there's an open house just down the... um, the road, but there were lots of kids out and so on, and uh, it was really a, a great time. And it's uh, uh, it's it's not been a bad winter up here. I've only had to shovel the driveway, I think, once or twice, which is kind of unusual. But hopefully, it will go into a nice summer because the last two summers have been pretty darn crappy. So I hope that you're all having a, had a wonderful week. I'll just start off with a brief. Uh, let's drop back in to uh, have a little chat uh, about um, uh, our good friend Ron Paul that we haven't talked about in quite some time. So, this is an article from March the 5th, I guess two days ago, entitled Most House Republicans Vote to Let School Children Be Held Down, Tied Up, and Put in Solitary Confinement. Uh, and it's, I won't read the whole article, but it says On Wednesday afternoon, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 4247, the Preventing Harmful Restraint and Seclusion in Schools Act, now called the Keeping All Students Safe Act, by a vote of 262 to 153. In the final vote count, 238 Democrats and just 24 Republicans voted for the bill, while 8 Democrats and 145 Republicans voted against it. H.R. 4247 was introduced in December by blah, 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 who cares? Um, The bill's stated purpose included to prevent and reduce the use of physical restraint and seclusion in schools, protect students from physical or mental abuse, aversive behavioral interventions that compromise health and safety and any physical restraint or seclusion imposed solely for the purposes of discipline or convenience ensure that physical restraint and seclusion are imposed in school only when a student's behavior poses an imminent danger of physical injury to the student school personnel or others and uh it's it's all nonsense right i mean we i think we all uh, we all understand that this bill won't do anything uh, to help that because the very people who will be enforcing it are the very people who are doing Um, not always but but sometimes if not often some pretty egregious things uh, to children so it's not going to work and it's not going to be enforced but what it does do is it gives you a, a sort of psychological snapshot of these sort of two ruling classes right the republicans and the democrats and of course while it's not often talked about one of the salient differences between the republicans and the democrats is religiosity in other words fundamentalism and it is not surprising to me that Uh, Christian fundamentalists are keen on the punishment of children because children are are not born religious. And so in a sense, to a religious person, children are born kind of bad, kind of evil, right? That's what I think the metaphor of uh, original sin is all designed to help people to understand and why it's believable is that children don't believe in God. And Christians don't believe in God either. I don't need to propagandize my child to believe in, in gravity, or that ice cream tastes good, or that daddy is the supreme authority in all things. Uh, okay, well, so one of those. It was either the gravity or the ice cream is important. Uh, but um, uh, you, you see the bad faith of, of religious people when it comes to children, and it is one of the great vulnerabilities of religiosity uh, is children. In fact, it's the greatest vulnerability. If, um, I, I'm certainly not going to teach Isabella my conclusions. I'm going to teach her a methodology, but I'm not going to teach her my conclusions. If she asks me what my conclusions are, I will tell her, but I'm not going to teach her that, uh, you know, these particular conclusions, I'm going to teach her how to think. Uh, because I trust in reason and evidence and empiricism and so on. So I don't need to inflict it upon her. But, uh, Christians, why... Why would they need to teach their children about God? I mean, God would speak to the children, just as God spoke to Jesus and the, many of the apostles, and as God has spoken to people throughout history, and as we assume, God has spoken to the parents. Uh, and it's because Christians don't believe in any kind of God that they have to propagandize their children. Because if you just let God introduce himself to your children, then you know that nobody's going to show up. And the propagandizing of children is, to me, a completely immoral. Uh, you do not own your children's minds any more than you own their bodies, and you cannot put poison into their minds any more than you can put poison morally, any more than you can put poison into their bodies. And so the fact that children are viewed as bad and recalcitrant and and difficult and problematic and, and wrong and so on is entirely on, uh, largely on, the more fundamentalist Christian side. And it's sad to say, but not too unpredictable, that Ron Paul voted against This measure. Now, again, I'm not saying this is going to protect a single child, but uh, it is a good bellwether of people's values. And um, Ron Paul is supposed to be about reducing the initiation of force or being opposed to the initiation of force. And clearly, uh, the initiation of force is being violated when children are being aggressed against when they're not posing an imminent danger to themselves and to others, which is certainly the case in many, many schools throughout the US and other countries, of course, as well. At the present, So why, oh, why would Ron Paul toss aside his values in order to vote against this bill? Well, because he's got an audience. And it is something that I did not appreciate. And this is why I look forward so much to these Sunday chats and to the listener conversations that I have. I did not realize for many years, I think, just how incredibly fortunate I was to have the listenership that I have. Uh, or that we have since this show is at least half other people as well the reason that i'm so lucky is that most times in business and i can say this with some authority having been an entrepreneur for many years but most times in business what you do is you go to your investors and you say hey i want to create a uh, a radio show or a podcast uh, and uh, the first thing that's going to be asked is uh, a who's your audience and b who are your advertisers so a Who is your audience? And B, who is your advertisers? And if I were to say, well, I don't know who my audience is because I'm just going to reason the truth from first principles and see who's interested, right? Um, The investors would say, "Uh, thank you, but no, right? Uh, Or they're going to say, well, so you're interested in talking about small government or libertarian topics. What's the demographics of the libertarian crowd? Say, well, you know, there's a lot of religious people in there, right? And they're going to say, well, what's your stance going to be on religion? I say, well, I'm going to talk about religion as both false and abusive. And they're going to say, "Eh, thank you for playing. (laughs) Let's not get a deal. And uh, they would award me the prize, which is a big hollow bowl of nothing. And uh, that's not how this show evolved. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. I mean, the show, of course, evolved with no idea of an audience, but with me wanting to speak truths that have been burning and raging in my mind for decades and uh, just with no idea of a business with no idea of uh, uh, even a calling, with no idea of an avocation or a career. And so I'm incredibly fortunate to have not built this show up as a business and not had to uh, cater to the prejudices of any particular group. What I've had to do is continue, as I have started, with speaking the truth as passionately and as uh, emphatically and with some reasonable backup of expertise and evidence and uh, syllogisms uh, as as vociferously, energetically, and hopefully entertainingly as possible. And that has freed me from this um, this problem that people have, which other people in the libertarian movement have, and I've talked about it with them to some degree. But they have this problem that they are bound by the audience that they already have. And once you're bound by the audience that you already have, your choices go down enormously, whereas my choices remain wide open because in the essence of what i talk about nothing has changed since my very first article uh, back in the end of 2005 now four plus years ago nothing has fundamentally changed and i thank you thank you all so much for your interest and excitement about philosophy uh, and empiricism and i i just applaud everybody who's involved in this conversation to whatever level and i even applaud those who are vociferously opposed to this conversation for also being guiding lights in their own way. And uh, I just thank you all so much for your interest and your support. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be doing. I think we are doing the very best thing that can be done for the world. And uh, I think that this example of voting against a bill whose ostensible purpose is to protect children uh, is, um, is is really revealing that uh, Ron Paul would vote against such a thing so and i 'm um, happy to hear arguments as to why uh, i 'm incorrect in my analysis, but I think voting against a bill that is supposed to be reducing child abuse, particularly with the approach that we take here around the importance of early childhood compassion and empathy and care in bringing about a better world, uh, I hope that um, uh, I hope that we understand what an egregious thing that is for somebody who claims to be for freedom. Our last thing i 'll say before we take listener calls is we are riding hard to the top 100K, my friends, and that is, I think, quite an exciting thing. So what I mean by that is, we uh, the freedomainradio.com is uh, getting close to the top 100,000 web websites within the Canada. Uh, sorry, within within the internet, not within the Canada. And I'll just give you some numbers here. Uh, The three month average, we were 125,121. The one month average, 115,670. One week average over the last week, we are 110,229. And we're going to go, at this rate, we'll be number one in two years. (laughs) Not quite. But we're going to be in the top 100,000 of websites. And for a philosophical conversation that is entirely challenging and entirely radical for many people, uh, it is quite the buckshot of red pills. Uh, that is uh, going around the world and thank you again everybody so much for making this possible but enough enough I say of the BCF yammer heading so uh, I think we have
1: a caller is that right Jimmy James Uh, yes that's right and he's online Um, he just needs to unmute himself and start chatting
0: yeah sorry uh, about that thank you for your patience I'm all elephant ears
2: Mr. Mullen it's a great honor to talk to you I I want to thank you for what you do and how you do it it's really remarkable
0: I appreciate your words thank you thank you so much and uh, what can I do for you my friend
2: well I I saw uh, actually I have two two issues I'd like to talk to you about but the first is I saw a video or a, a documentary a couple of weeks ago called Flow. It's about the about water and and people trying to corner the market on it and in that they vilified the notion of privatizing uh water companies essentially and uh in the, the standard liberal uh, liberal conservative mindset they they saw that uh, it was the privatizing was corporatizing
3: and I am curious to hear your
2: thoughts on the difference and how how that can be practically how privatization can happen in the present situation without it simply being corporatization.
0: Right no that's that's an excellent excellent question um i'm i'm no expert on on water um i drink it uh, i pass it uh, and i swim in it but i'm certainly no expert on it but I, I think there are some general principles that we can use to examine the situation the general fear that people have is i think really a a, a real challenge for people's to for people to understand how, how dangerous these concepts are of, uh, you know, privatization is bad, but when the government gets a hold of it, then um, uh, it, is, uh, it is good. And fundamentally, I think what it comes down to is this, is that you can manipulate and bully and try to control a government as a citizen in a way that you just can't do. With a private corporation, because the government can print money, the government can pass laws, and the government does respond to special interest groups and so if you want something done in the world, whether it's the preservation of water or um, the clean- cleaning the air or protecting the small dotted spotted owl in some <laughs> tree in Albany, then you have a challenge because a corporation which uh, let's say you want to protect a forest, well, a corporation that owns that forest is is fundamentally responsible to the shareholders and to the employees and even more fundamentally is responsible to its customers. And so you really can't bully and pressure a corporation in quite the same way. I mean, there is of course public relations and you can threaten to smear them and you all this and that, but, and a corporation will listen to these things because public image is, is important, but a corporation fundamentally cannot pull money out of its ass and spread it around like candy And so it is limited by what its customers will accept, and it is limited by what its employees, how hard its employees, or how well its employees will work, and it's limited uh, by competition, and it's it's, it's limited by competition not just for customers and resources but for investment dollars and so on. And so fundamentally you can't manipulate and bully a corporation in the same way that you can manipulate and bully the government. So people who want to do stuff and have such low self-esteem that they, either what they want to do is unjust and unfair or irrational or they really want something done and done right and, and for good reasons and so on. But they lack the self-esteem to sit down with corporate owners or to sit down with – and they, they they lack the self-esteem to to get what they want through appeals to self-interest and reason and benevolence and so on. And so what happens is those kinds of people who either want to do bad things or who want to do good things but lack self-esteem in negotiations, what they want to do is start waving signs and they want to start gathering people together and yelling slogans and so on in an attempt to bully the government to do things. And so when people want to do stuff, they're afraid of corporations because corporations aren't that responsive to bullying, but... You know, like if you want your lunch money, if you're a bully and you want your lunch money, you're going to pick on the kid with, uh, you know, uh, uh, spindly legs and glasses and and all that, right? Uh, Who's ungroomed and probably quite um, shorn of parental protection. And it's the same thing. You you want to pick on the most responsive entity uh, to your bullying if the only thing that you know how to do is bully. So people like governments who want to get things done from that standpoint and they're afraid of corporations because corporations have a limit on how much bullying they will accept, and that limit is called it's called profitability. And so there's this fantasy that if we move things out of the private sector and into the public sector, they will be more responsive to people's wishes. But that's not true at all. They will be responsive to the, the wishes of special interest groups, and they will be responsive to those interests at the expense of other people, and it, particularly at the expense of children in the future, which is, of course, selling off unborn children is uh, entirely part of the national uh, it's the national debt thing, right? And it's always been ironic to me that Republicans are so concerned with the rights of the unborn in terms of fetuses, but they have no problem screwing the unborn with a drill bit when it comes to selling them off to the Chinese because the Republicans ran up some of the largest national debts in history. But that's just the normal hypocrisy that you would expect. So if there is a problem with water in terms of shortage, then what you want to do is you want to get that water into private hands as quickly as humanly possible. And what that will do is it will take it out of the realm of political pull and it will put it back into the realm of profit. And what that means is that those who are the most intelligent in managing and using and conserving the resources um, will be the ones who end up with the most control over them. Uh, So I think it's really, really important uh, wherever there's any kind of shortage, you want to get things into private hands as quickly as possible so that they won't be open to manipulation, so they won't be open to uh, being uh, subsidized and spread around by governments. I mean, look at the oil crisis. The oil crisis is driven by a number of very specific state policies. The first state policy was the building of free roads. (laughs) I mean, I've never seen an environmentalist talk about privatizing the roads in order to reduce gas consumption. But when you have the roads paid for by the collective, and profited from by those who use them the most, then it's a heavy subsidy for the use of gasoline. And and, uh, that's a huge problem. I mean, this was all built in the post-war period. The interstate highway system was built in the post-war period, in the U.S. in particular, uh, for fears of um, a nuclear bomb and a a nuclear attack or some other form of weapons of mass destruction attack. And they wanted the, you know, like the Romans, they wanted the roads to move the troops around and, and preserve the government's power. But uh, as soon as you put these things into the public sphere, you know, roads and and the other thing that's, I think, very much involved in in, the overconsumption of gasoline is the fact that um, uh, the extraction and protection of all of this gasoline is to a large degree paid for by the taxpayer, right? So uh, in Saudi Arabia, there are, you know, tens or I think it's almost close to it was at some point. Close to 100,000 troops It's probably been drained down now because of Iraq and Afghanistan. But uh, the U.S. taxpayers were paying for the protection of all of this oil through the propping up of this absurd and uh, uh, evil Saudi regime. And so even the protection of the oil resources is paid for by the taxpayer and the roads are all paid for by the taxpayer. So uh, you have this um, terrible problem where uh, this subsidization occurs. If you privatize all this stuff, you would get very real very real costs accruing to the consumer, which would be much better. The last thing I'll mention is that I don't know what the situation is in the U S but up here in Canada, uh, electricity is heavily subsidized by the government and that's another huge problem. And I've never seen an environmentalist who says in order to preserve our energy, we need to take away the subsidies that uh, the government is paying for the taxpayers. And Of course, the reason that the government pays these subsidies is so that it locks people in it locks itself into power and it locks people in to supporting the government because they 're subsidized but of course it means that people are going to use more power than they otherwise would because of the subsidies, so it 's cheaper and therefore people are less interested in conserving it so I think it is a big problem, uh, and I really hope that uh, people will begin to understand this and overcome their fear of uh, of private citizens um, having control of resources and just recognize that yeah, it's true that you may be able to bully the government into doing X, Y, and Z, but it's not to anybody's long-term interest, although it may be certainly towards some people's short-term interest. Is that, uh, I'm sorry, that's not a very detailed answer, but does that give some, uh, some use?
1: Well, it, um, are you hearing me? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, my, my question, I guess, was more specific than your
2: answer. Um, uh, your answer is excellent, but the... Uh, but how, if you're if getting it into private hands, we have we have another gun in the room, if you will. Um, that's the the gun of corporate power. And so, privatizing is I'm I'm all more privatizing. I've read a lot of your stuff, and I understand you know private goods. But the uh, but the problem is that it doesn't that there's a difference between private and and multinational conglomerate
0: oh you mean sort of between a a corporation that is free from the state and a corporation that has its pockets uh, its hands deep in the pockets of the state
2: well yes and, and every corporation i mean by by definition a corporation exists by by permission of the state um, so how do you how do you get it to a responsible citizen past this this uh giant creature of corporatism
0: well i would agree with them i mean because most people say capitalism or the free market and what they mean is mercantilism or corporism or fundamentally uh, fascism which is the union of large commercial interests with state power right the union of those two is called is called fascism of course and so if people are anti-fascist Hey I'm um, I'm down for that you know uh, I'll uh, you know give me a banner I'll march alongside them so if people are like I don't like the idea of transferring resources to corporate power I'm like hey I don't like it either I don't like corporations I don't I don't I mean to me what has happened is the government has set up because the government is largely run by lawyers right so the government has set up an incredibly aggressive and destructive and punitive legal system where you can sue the living shit out of people and then what it's done is it is said, but we'll give exceptions to corporations so that a corporation can be sued or can go bankrupt. And the risk does not accrue to the individuals who own it. So they create this legal fiction called a corporation, which is a way of evading the very dangerous scare tactics that the state has set up to bully people. It can then grants an exemption to certain parts of the commercial class in return for of course, uh, donations and support, and particularly in the media, for never pointing out the gun in the room, and so on. So it's a really unholy bargain, wherein the government sets up all these dangerous, uh, this dangerous tort system of people getting sued and and all of that, and it also sets up a very punitive, at least for the little guy, a, a very punitive bankruptcy uh, s- situation, and so that in- inevitably is going to choke business, right? So the people who lend money. Want the people who default on their debts to be really screwed up. And the government is happy to agree. But then what that does is it begins to kill business growth. And so what the government does then is it creates a special shield for businesses from bankruptcy proceedings, or for business people from bankruptcy proceedings and from being sued. And that's called a corporation. And uh, I, I agree that they're a completely unholy uh, and uh, artificial state uh, founded uh, legal fiction. And they, there's no conceivable way that they would ever exist in a truly free system. So I agree with people that um, you know corporatism is vile. corporatism is what uh, the ghost of Mussolini rises to salute and cheer every single morning <laughs> until this uh, system is uh, is changed. So I, I'd completely agree with people, but but sorry, but what I wouldn't say to them is that the solution is to give things to the government, because if people have a problem with corporations, I say, well, who created corporations?" Well, governments, who, who enforces the charter called corporatism? Well, governments, who accepts donations from corporations all the time? Governments, who controls corporations? Governments, so thinking that you can get a better public good by taking things out of the lackeys and putting it into the hands of their masters is crazy. It's like saying, I don't like the guys who come round to my restaurant to shake me down for $1,000 a month for, quote, protection. So I want to switch that job to the army. It's like no, 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 <laughs> right? I mean, putting things in the hands of the state doesn't solve the problem because the state created and sustains the corporations.
1: So, so is there currently
2: any uh, practical way around this, or are we just we're just stuck with uh, with two gunmen instead of one,
1: and there's really. Uh, we're
0: just fucked. that? <laughs> we're <awesome>. just fucked. <laughs> um, no, we're not fucked at all. We are not. I, I think. I, I personally think that this conversation uh, has obviously. I believe that it has by far the greatest chance to free the world. And may, maybe that sounds crazy. Maybe that sounds grandiose. But I think that we've. I've gathered enough evidence through the recent interviews and through the stuff that I've written throughout the years to really prove that this is the case. If you want people to be free, you have to raise children better. It's nothing to do with intellectual arguments. The reality is that human beings have a particular worldview, you know, what the objectivists used to call a worldview. Human beings have a worldview. That worldview is not derived from reason and evidence. What happens is people have a, they grow up with a particular worldview based upon the, the surroundings that they grow up in, how they're parented, how they're preached at by their preachers, how they're taught by their teachers, all of the authority figures around a child's life, create that worldview that the child has. And for the rest of that child's life, when he or she is an adult, the child simply creates reasons to justify that worldview. And there's very strong scientific evidence that this is not just a theory. This is fact. And I've got uh, just finished an interview with Dr. Siegel about this, and I'll publish it this week that there is very strong, in fact, you could say, overwhelming scientific evidence that uh, people have a physiological response deep in the brain to particular stimuli, and then they create reasons for that afterwards. So, for instance, if a scientist places a probe in your brain and then makes you laugh, you will laugh involuntarily. And then afterwards, the scientist will say to you, why did you laugh? And everybody makes up a reason as to why they laughed. They don't say... I don't know why I laugh. They say, Well, you did something funny, or I saw this and that was funny, and so on. They make up a reason afterwards to explain their involuntary emotional state. And so, deep down in the brain, we have this uh, worldview. And what happens is we make up reasons after the fact to justify this worldview. And that's why arguing people about reason and evidence doesn't work, because their beliefs are not derived from reason and evidence. The only way that we can change the world is not with arguments. And not with blogs, but with uh, raising children to be more peaceful, raising children to not be afraid of authority, raising children as uh, glorious equals, (laughs) raising children uh, peacefully and uh, uh, lovingly. Uh, Then we will raise a society that will have no patience and no interest and no fundamental belief in any kind of political or religious hierarchy. But uh, there's, there's no other way to do it, at least that I've seen. So we're not fucked. But uh, but you and I, given that you don't sound like you're 12, you and I are very unlikely to live to see any kind of free world. But what we can do is we can take the absolutely necessary steps and the only steps that are going to bring about
1: that kind of freedom.
2: Very good. Uh, so, okay. Uh, it's interesting. You, you kind of come around to my other question, if I may. Please. Um, it's- I am not an atheist, but i am I have been described by people I respect as the most rational person they've ever met um, and i I posted to the to the your uh, forum about the mathematical untenability of atheism, specifically the necessity statistically of a
1: uh, the necessity of a universal engineer.
2: Uh, and I've I differentiated for myself and, and for my children, for people I've spoke to, about how that there is an engineer is is science is math is is unavoidable.
0: Uh, and sorry, could how, you just run? I think you mentioned this in the chat room yesterday, but perhaps you could run through the argument again so that I can uh, understand it more clearly.
3: Well,
2: uh, it's simply that if you if you think a finite universe and uh, and a finite Period of time,
3: and,
1: uh, and there is statistically
2: only so many possibilities of things that can occur. And if you consider the, the how many variables there are in the spontaneous initiation of life, um, and how many of those have to be have to happen in a row uh, in, a, in a certain order at a um, under certain conditions, uh, your, the, the statistical likelihood of that occurring is is vastly, is, is enormously outside of the realm of statistical possibility.
0: Um, I'm sorry, let me just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. So, what you're saying is that the steps that would be necessary to create life or to create uh, sentient life like human beings, that the steps are so uh, improbable. That statistically it could not have happened on its own, is that your argument
1: that's a, that's a decent synopsis,
0: yes. and why um what aspects of it do you consider to be uh so improbable? I mean, as far as I understand it, biologists have created the basic building blocks of life uh in in uh laboratory conditions that resemble that of the early Earth. I think it's a bunch of amino acids and lightning and, you know, God knows I don't know the details, but my understanding is that they've let this sort of just run the natural course of um, the early conditions that uh, the world was in, I guess a couple of billion years ago, when life first arose, and they have seen the spontaneous building blocks of life uh, form. So I'm just trying to understand what it is, where you see the improbability uh, of of life coming into being. What part of that process, to you, is uh, is so hard to uh, uh, to justify mathematically?
2: Um, well, there there. Actually, it doesn't take very many very many problems uh very many variables to arrive at a possibility uh, I mean, the, the temperature i mean I mean you, you just, the the temperature the the level of moisture the the composition of the the chemicals that are there and even in what you just said the uh they were able to form amino acids allegedly well. Which is, which is a far cry from, say, a mold or an amoeba. Much less. Uh,
0: sure, sure. No, I understand. I understand, but there's also billions of years, right? So, I mean, that's, there's no way that they can fast forward that, that time slice. But it's, so is what you mean, like the Earth is 93 million miles away from the sun, and if it were a couple of million miles closer, it would be too hot, and if it were a couple of million miles further away, we'd be too cold. Is, is that, so there's something that displacement seems more than coincidental. Is that right?
2: And when you consider, and what I what I did on the, excuse me, on the uh, where I posted, was I, I took the mass of the universe. I I, I gave it all a number. I, I I took the mass of the universe that I got from some source, I took to be reputable. I squared it just to be just to be safe, just to be you know to err on the side of of generosity. Um, I mean the odds. I mean if you if you simply take Mr. Mullin. Uh, a 50/50 chance. The odds of 665 50/50 chances all coming up heads, for example, okay, uh, is is more is one in a number greater than every subatomic particle in the universe times every nanosecond
1: in 4 trillion
0: years. So, and... I'm about, sorry to interrupt, and I I, I think I appreciate that, the, I, I think we can both accept that that would be completely impossible, but um, that's not how evolution works. Evolution is not a random process, right? Evolution is a process of natural selection, and so it's not uh, it's not randomized. And so it, I don't think 50-50 is, is an appropriate um, sum to give to that. The second thing that I would say is the fact that it's improbable, of course, doesn't mean that it's impossible. So let's just take a silly example. Right? So there's a drop of water that has come from a comet somewhere out in the deep, in the depths of space and has then become part of the Earth. And it becomes a drop of water and it sits and floats around in the ocean. And uh, it circulates around the oceans, and then it goes up to the surface, and lo and behold, it gets um, evaporated up into a cloud where it floats around. And let's say you've, you've got a dime on your front walkway. You've got a little dime right there on your front walkway, and that, um, that uh, uh, water droplet, which came from a comet in the deep reaches of space, deep reaches of space, that comet, uh, hits enough dust particles during a rainstorm to fall. And it falls, and it falls, and it falls, and it splats down on your dime. That one that one drop. Well, if you were to calculate and say, well, what are the odds that that <laughs> comet uh, a drop of water is going to land on that dime, you know, two billion years later, you'd say, well, the odds are just so ridiculously tiny and astronomical and so on, and you'd be right. But of course, there's Billions of raindrops falling uh, uh, throughout billions of years, hundreds of billions, if not trillions, of raindrops falling throughout billions of years. So, sooner or later, right, one of them is going to hit that dime that you've got out in your front porch. It's not God who's driving it. It's just, well, that's. And and from what we see in the universe, I mean, the other planets appear to be completely uninhabitable um, and don't add anything in particular to the earth's survivability of like, it's not like, I guess the moon helps a little bit with the tides. It helps with fishing and so on. But, uh, it's not like that, that survival on earth is not aided by Jupiter. So if there's some engineer who was out there building the perfect home for human beings, then uh, it didn't do a very good job because it put all these planets out there that that don't help at all, and and so on, and and of course a lot of the planet is inhospitable, uh, and uh, asteroids hit, and uh, there's tsunamis, so there's diseases, right? So it, it's not a very it's not a very friendly place to human life, or at least it wasn't until sort of nineteenth or twentieth centuries. So I, I, I would sort of I, it's there's this there's, there's a lot of coincidences for sure. But in a very large universe with the creation of life, which at least the building blocks for life, which seems to be something that is possible, followed by natural selection, I agree with you that it seems entirely uh, improbable. But improbable is what fits into what we know about the universe, which is that the Earth is the only place that that we know of that life can even remotely exist. And, uh, of course, it will take us going to other solar systems to find out more. But it may be that this is the only place in the universe that life exists. I think that's unlikely, but let's say it is, in which case there's just that one drop of rain that hit the dime. But that doesn't mean that the universe is designed for life, because then you would expect everywhere in the universe for, th- for there to be life. But it, seems, it does seem pretty random, and I think there's just a lot of coincidences that have accrued, which make it seem designed, but I don't think that uh, the design is a, is a very strong argument.
1: Okay, uh, to take your to
2: take your, your metaphor uh, another step further, what we're talking about statistically is not merely a drop of water hitting a dime, I mean, a drop of water from space hitting a dime. We're talking about the statistical unlikelihood that is tantamount to a raindrop hitting that dime, hitting a dime on my walkway every morning at 8.13 a.m., the time i'm six to the time i'm 96
0: and i'm sorry i'm still trying to understand where the um where the statistical improbabilities occur uh, and if you could just explain a little bit about that I, i'd appreciate that i mean it, 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 obviously i agree with you that it's improbable like it's not a lot of planets that support life for sure but this happens to be one that does and that's not a violation of any kind of natural laws it's right so but where do you see the the very small likelihood Right. So once once there's a planet that can support life, which is obviously not impossible, once there are um, uh, it seems almost inevitable that life will occur. Uh, and after that, uh, evolution kind of takes over. So I'm still not sure where the impossibility comes from.
2: Well, I am I would say that I don't know where the I don't know where you get the possibility. The, uh, I don't know where you come up with the possibility.
3: Uh, not to be not to be.
0: No, no, that's fine. But I, I'll, I'll explain it again briefly, right? So we have a planet that's the right amount of distance from the sun, which has the right combination of, I guess, nitrogen and oxygen and other things in the air uh, that's that's breathable. And uh, we have, I guess, enough water and so on. So there's a, a certain amount of coincidence there. I completely agree with you. Um, but but after that, uh, it seems that life is going to happen. I mean, because again, they've, they've built at least the basic building blocks of it uh, in the laboratory setting that replicates the early uh, Earth environment. And after life begins to develop, after you get DNA reproduction, evolution takes over and you have this competition, survival of the fittest and uh, the weeding out of bad mutations and the enhancement, uh, survival enhancement of, of good mutations for reproduction. So given that the, it's certainly not a design element that the earth happens to be this far from the sun, that's just coincidence. And it seems that life is going to arise in that kind of environment sooner or later, and after life does arise, evolution takes over. So I'm just not sure where the vast improbability exists, and I'm, I'm certainly happy to hear. I'm I'm not a huge expert on this. Uh, I've just finished listening to Dawkins, the greatest show on earth, so I think I know a little bit, but I'm not uh, any genius in this area. But uh, I'm happy to hear where the improbabilities occur.
2: Well, I think you I think you put your finger right on it. You said after DNA comes to exist, then Then you have uh, survival of the fittest and so on. They're right there, just prior to after DNA exists, is where you have your enormous improbability.
0: Uh, Sorry, after DNA comes into existence, is the enormous improbability?
2: No, just prior to that.
0: Just prior to that, okay.
2: DNA coming into existence, Um, you've got... Whatever, whatever sequence you have, however many uh, I can envision as little thing clicking together in the double helix, uh, however many of those you have, each one is has a certain likelihood of existence. And uh, I mean, if, if they're like, and I, I use a I use a 50-50 chance because 50-50 is, is good odds. Um, but if each one is only a 50-50 chance,
0: sorry, each one of what?
1: If each each uh, if each gene coming
2: together in a in a strand of DNA is uh, is a 50 50 chance, the likelihood of if there if you have 600 and, uh, 665 genes, and I use that number intentionally. Uh,
0: I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I just need to interrupt you, and I, I really do apologize for that. I'm just trying to follow what it is you're saying. Again, I'm no expert. My, my understanding is that the genes do not assemble themselves randomly, though, right? I mean, this is all a process of uh, of evolution, right? I mean, they don't just all come together sort of randomly. I mean, they, they evolve from RNA and so on, right?
2: Well, they do now. I mean, they they. I mean, my the, the DNA my wife and I put together are sitting at the table right now, and, and
0: oh, but that's not random, but, right? I mean that that DNA didn't didn't all assemble itself randomly.
2: But initially, if that, if that had to start without an engineer, it had to have been random. Is that.
0: Can we well, that no, see, this is this is an argument, uh, and I, I'm going to paraphrase an argument that, that Dawkins uses, so, uh, you know, with apologies to Dickie D, but there's an argument which says that, that for a human being to assemble itself or for life to assemble itself, it's like a wind blowing through a junkyard and then assembling uh, a 747 out of those parts, right? And that that's so wildly improbable that somebody has to make the seven. If you have a 747, somebody has to have made it because there's no way that randomness is going to assemble the the composite parts. Is that is that what you mean?
2: Yes, or even a, or even something as simple as an iron skillet.
0: Uh, sure, but but that's not that's not how life develops, and and I'm not going to try and re- reproduce uh, Dawkins' work or the work of of other. Uh, thinkers in this area I would suggest uh, you know you can have a look at the blind watchmaker you can have a look at the selfish gene or I would really really recommend plowing through the greatest show on earth Because uh, he, I think, brings some amazing scientific, empirical, and reasoning evidence to bear on that this is not a valid argument in terms of how life develops, that it is not a random assemblage, that it's not a 747 that got blown together out of pieces in a junkyard, but it is something that develops um, uh, very selectively and very – it's not a conscious will, but it's like a conscious will in terms of survival and reproduction and so on. So I'm, you know, not not to bore everybody who may have already settled this within their own mind, but if you would like to take a look through the Greatest Show on Earth or something like that, um, there are other books out. If that's not to your taste, uh, that uh, then I think if you if you have a look at, at those books, I think you'll have uh, a better way of understanding the slow and gradual and selective uh, approach that. Uh, Uh, that it it ends up assembling what seems to be an incredible miracle, which I agree (laughs) it is. I mean, I have a daughter, too, and she's just astounding when it comes to the things that she can do. And the idea that uh, this is all random, I agree with you. If it were random, it would be completely impossible. But uh, evolution is is quite the opposite of a random process. It is a very directed and focused process that assembles more and more complex uh, entities which have a greater and greater chance Uh, of survival based upon external threats and internal diseases. So it is a very, very focused process. Uh, It is a very uh, self-selecting process, and it is the opposite of of randomness. Now, some of the mutations will seem kind of random, uh, but the way in which uh, beings evolve is, is not at all random.
1: Well, I thank you very much for your time, sir.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, if you do have a look at those books and uh, and read them, I would be happy to to chat further. And uh, I think it would be interesting for for the book club to talk about it too, because I was really quite impressed.
2: Could I could I ask you one small favor? Sure. Um, on the on the message board, when I when I posed what I what we've just discussed, um, that thread was locked, and it it seems to me. Without cause. I mean, I wasn't rude. I, no one was rude to me. I didn't see any uh, any overt problems going on. Um, and I'm just wondering if you would. And I'm not asking you to answer this right now. I'll I'll.
0: Yeah. It. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't know it was locked, and I certainly didn't lock it. But I will ask around to the other admins and and find out what the uh, what the reasoning was.
2: I appreciate that enormously, and uh, <laughs> I know this doesn't quite mean to you what it does to me, but God bless you, sir. And, uh, <laughs> congratulations on your beautiful daughter.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, and I appreciate the conversation. I I really did enjoy it, and uh, it also realized that if I'm going to answer this more intelligently, I need to do a bit more research, so I appreciate your patience as I flogged my way through some semi-answers. Oh,
1: You did great. Uh, Thank
2: you very
0: much. All right. Thanks. All right. Uh, Do we have uh, another caller? Uh, Uh, Or are we still waiting for them? Hi, Steph. Oh, hi.
4: Hello. Um, I had a about um, well actually I, I wanted to probe you for some advice on the um, the meetup group I started in Philadelphia if you have any tips <laughs> for philosophy since you yourself have started a very popular philosophy show so
0: thanks could um, you just just back off from your mic a bit I'm getting a bit of um, uh, overthrow on the audio wait let me how's that that's better thanks all right
1: okay
4: um just to throw in some tidbits on that that guy that was just on um i i wanted to add like that that when people think of that blind watchmaker thing the the building the 747 that's a very top down architecture type of thought process which people are that's how you build things as humans but everything as far as biology is bottom up
0: yeah you start with very simple bits and they're it's almost like um it's almost like there's an increasingly powerful magnet drawing all of these things together uh, and people think right. that's a god but it's just evolution right
4: right okay so um so i started this philly meetup group and we've had and what had sorry just meetup, before you
0: start just before you start what was the what was the purpose of the meetup group
4: okay um so i had three goals in mind um, one is that i'm hoping that um i can create something that attracts the kind of uh love i'm looking for to start a family and all of that that's like a a very end goal um a, a secondary goal would be to meet um friends more friends grow the <laughs> grow the uh the Philly group here with um some people that are more my age and more and more interesting people, and um, a tertiary goal would be to spread the ideas around and and enjoy talking about philosophy over beer. And um, I guess I have a sort of a methodology for kind of getting to the <laughs> those three end goals. But um,
0: and sorry, just so people who don't know Nate uh, understand what he means when he says that uh, he wants to meet people closer to his own age. The the Philly Meetup group that Nate has founded is called Eh, what? UP what? Huh? What? Sorry, come on.
1: Thank Get you. off my lawn <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> and you have to have suspenders to cranking your pants right up to your nipples. That's that's absolutely uh, a given right there. Right. But sorry, come on.
4: All right. Oh, distracted
1: That's your train of thought now
3: baby
4: (laughs) yeah i thought that um i sort of had a methodology for getting to that point and but it's not all really pieced together as a as sort of a a project plan as as much as it might could be like i i want to attract people that um that are very interested in truth, very curious, very honest, very, um, what the, (laughs) all the people that are at FDR and I want to repel the sort of, uh, creepy abstract people that want to come in and sort of be anti philosophical, anti truth.
0: Right. So all philosophy, no trolls, right? Right. Right. Right.
4: And I know a large part of that is being sort of assertive when necessary. And, um. Uh. And I think, in the abstract, just just intellectually, I know this that uh, having fun with it is certainly helpful. But um, I don't know how that works in practice.
0: Having fun with because, it. What do you mean?
4: Like just sort of like because that's how I grew my dodgeball and volleyball meetup in houston so big it got to like 530 members before i left <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is one and, crowded ass volleyball court just for those who don't know that's <laughs> like stacking people up like court would spike out my head Sorry.
4: <laughs> luckily there was more than one court
0: oh good that's even better
4: yeah yeah um but I, I just had a lot of fun like playing and and i that that's all i was there for i was there to just play the game and have fun and i was certainly not the best player there <laughs> By any means, but I I think that's part of what attracted people to the whole thing. Um, but sometimes I, I I have and I know you've said before that <laughs> it's not about me, but I can't seem to shift my mind into that that mode when I go to these um, meetups. I feel sort of disconnected, like. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have like all three years seem to have empty out of my mind. Like everything I I've learned from your philosophy podcast, everything I've learned from reading Ayn Rand, everything I've learned from reading, um, from reading Plato, from reading Socrates. Well, that's Plato, but um, or Aristotle, everything I've read from reading Nietzsche. Uh, it all seems to just sort of empty out of my head and, I can't help, but I guess I've got this lack of confidence right
1: right, it. right,
4: and I'm not sure how
1: to handle the whole thing right,
0: okay, and um how would you know i mean the reason I asked what the point is 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 how are you going to know when it's successful like what what would that mean to you what would success mean to you
1: I think it would um I think it would look like a very um not a huge group
4: but like a group of 20 people or so and, and all um really enjoying each other's company never like all interacting um, I think I want it to end up a lot like our meetups are on Thursdays with just the FDR folks right um but bigger <laughs> and um attracting new people all the time um i want it to look not just so much having philosophical conversations but intimate conversations about um how philosophy is applied in our personal lives and and things like that um am i i'm not being very concrete i don't think
0: no it's fart. it's fine I think uh, I think I understand uh, I think I understand what you're talking about but sorry go on I
4: think it I I can really describe it more in a feeling I think is uh, like when I go meet with everyone on
1: Thursdays um I feel a
4: sense of like warmth and and I feel relaxed I feel um
1: visible and happy. <laughs> and wow. I sort of want to c- expand that,
0: I guess. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, in what way do you feel that it is not uh, succeeding in the way that you'd like it to?
4: Um, it's not growing. And I seemed, and and a lot of people have noticed, like Greg, the, the last meetup pointed out rightly so, because I, I agreed that's how I was feeling, but I was disconnected. And I wasn't sort of taking a leadership role. Right. And I felt sort of out of touch and not sure where to take it. And I sort of felt, that way, and there there also weren't very many people that are were new. There was just like one or two people have shown up so far that aren't <laughs> familiar with f d r right so it's like, okay, do we talk about advanced ideas with one person who's sort of new, or do we talk about new old stuff that we all accept and all understand, like first principles like existence exists a is a all that stuff, or do we? <laughs> Take it a different direction. What, because um, I set up the meetups with the topic or a theme. Like this, this Tuesday is ethics, and the time before that was concepts. The time before that was first principles. Um, but it never really. <laughs> it, it's very hard to make it like classroom-like because it's very amorphous. It's like there are people are coming and going. It grows. In size it's not like a class
1: right, right right,
4: so it's kind of complicated in that sense, and so I decided to add a book club aspect to it as well, so that at least there's a central focus like okay, everybody that's read this book can come, and we can talk about the book
0: okay, let me start asking you some questions because i I think i can I think I understand what the what the issues are so um okay. How long do you think it will take for somebody who's just got some interest in philosophy or who God forbid has read bad philosophy? Uh, how long do you think it would take for them roughly to um to switch over to you know the reason and evidence stuff that we talk about here
4: um, Well either they're going to seize onto it or they're going to reject it
0: Let's say they seize onto it. How long do you think it will take until they are valuable and useful companions who can? turn value to you
4: a few months i guess
0: a few months (laughs) years
4: a few years it's taken me three years
0: what an insult to yourself that well you know random people can do it in three months i mean okay it took me years but random people anybody off the street should be able to do it oh in just a couple of months right right I am just statistically, right? I mean, have
1: you known anybody who's done it in a couple of months? No. Right. So, again, we're all about the empiricism,
0: right? I mean, y'all are smarter than me. It took me 20 years, right? Y'all got it down to two years or three years, right? That's that's a damn improvement, right?
1: Okay. But when and you just, met Christina's... The, just the reality of the situation, right? Right. But now, when
0: I met my wife, though, um, she had studied as a scientist. She was fascinated by self-knowledge. Uh, she was, uh, you know, obviously very well-educated and and experienced and so on. And uh, so we, you know, we had those values in common anyway, right? Because it's the values that really matter. I mean, it's not the details. It's not the conclusions, Right. Right. I mean, it's not, God forbid, right? It's not like I have all the answers and so I need somebody who's either going to A, listen to those answers and repeat them back to me or B, uh, has exactly the same answers already. I mean, that would not be a relationship. That would be either a photocopy or uh, a, a, a sort of um, uh, mentor-learner relationship, which is not appropriate, I think, for romance. But um, uh, so, right. you know, she taught, I taught and, and blah, 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 Right. Right. I mean, I always always think of when I have a sort of particular plan or a project, I like to think of a skeptical group of investors. Like I'm asking people for a million dollars for this, right? Or something like that. And they're going to pepper me with all of these difficult questions. And Lord knows I've had those difficult questions in my business career, as I'm sure you have as well, quite a lot, right? But what's, you know, the questions that people are going to ask is, well… What are you hoping to get out of it? Well, a girlfriend. Okay, so how are you planning on achieving that? Well, I'm going to take somebody with very little knowledge of philosophy and then turn them into a great philosopher in about three months, right? And they'd say, well, that seems kind of fast. What's your evidence that that has ever occurred, right? Uh, it hasn't. How long did it take you? A couple of years. So if she does it in a couple of months, she's way smarter than you and she's going to get bored, right? <laughs> she's way <laughs> smarter than anybody alive, I think, right? I mean, it took Ayn Rand 20
1: years, right? Wow. Yeah,
4: I I feel kind of some despair when you say that.
0: I know. I I understand that, and I think that's good, because remember, philosophy is all about. Particularly, free domain radio is all about uh, taking the rising irrational hopes and expectations and slapping them with the wet, cold, dead fish of empiricism. Right? Yeah. And and you've been avoiding this despair, and, and it is, right? The, the more l- – let me give you an example, right? Let me give you an example. So let's say that you have been studying piano uh, and jazz composition theory for years and years, right? And you've been working at it really hard. You've been practicing hours a day, right? Right. And you say, I want to get together a group of people to jam, and the only requirement – is that people have to like music.
1: Well, it's going to sound like a god-awful mess,
0: right? Right. Because it's like, I like music. Can you play? I like music. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, they're just going to sit there and start uh, hitting the piano keys with, I don't know, a ball-bearing hammer, a jackhammer, or their forehead, right? Right, right. I mean, if you've ever been to karaoke bar, you know that a simple like of music does not music meek, right? Right. And so I think it's important to recognize that you've graduated to professional jazz musician, right? Or at least skilled, very skilled amateur, right? Right. And so it's not likely. In fact, I would say the likelihood is virtually nil that you're going to put an, uh, an ad out saying, I want to jam with people and just have... Random people show up and you have no idea of their training or their experience or whatever, right? And you're just going to sit down and start playing. It's going to sound like, you know, a bunch of cats in a bag rolling down a steep flight of stairs, right?
4: So apparently that's a bad plan.
0: Well, I'm just saying empirically, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that success is, is imminent.
1: Right. So,
4: (laughs) I can't think of any alternatives to this plan off the top of my head, but I certainly feel less motivated about
1: my original plan. Well, there's two things that you can do when you're not meeting the right person. You can up your game, or you can lower your standards, right?
0: Right. And by lowering my you standards, I'm not talking. You know, uh, you know, find some half-drunk female bum drug addict, and you know, drag her home and put her on the couch. What I'm saying is that um, to to expect, like, if you look at philosophy as like jazz, you don't have to be married to a jazz musician if you're a jazz musician, right? You don't have to. It, it, it's probably nice if you can,
1: but it's not essential, right? Right.
0: I would also suggest that I, I'm not saying a virtue is not a standard that I would compromise on when it comes to a romantic relationship or even a friendship. Virtue, I think, is is essential. But I think that there are some people who, for a variety of reasons, are, you know, kind of more naturally virtuous. I, I, obviously, I think it has to do with their upbringing, perhaps a little bit to their physiology mostly to do with their upbringing but they've been raised pretty well right i mean nobody's raised perfectly but but they've been raised pretty well um you know with with good enough parents and and a good self-esteem and so on right and they were not uh beaten they were not uh, verbally abused they were not kicked they were not yelled at they right uh they were raised pretty well right and they're going to have i think more of the virtue then somebody let's say who's really messed up who starts getting into philosophy and self-knowledge it's going to take them a long time to get to that basic right somebody who's a born runner and somebody who's trying to get out of a wheelchair right not 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 the same place after the same amount of work right 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 so you don't have to take the raw clay of human dysfunction mold them through philosophy and and wait for the the machine just spit out the cube of perfection on the other side, right?
4: That would be an enormous amount of work, and I don't think that would even work.
0: I know I don't think it would. I think it would be a, a, an interesting thing to do, but I don't think uh, I don't think that kind of disparity is a good basis for a, a romantic relationship, or even a friendship, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: I agree. And so
0: you can, uh, uh, you can, if you want, you can continue with the groups. Uh, but I think, my guess is that if you're going in there with an agenda, then you're also going in there with a desire to control, in a sense, or a desire to find someone or to find the right person, uh, either as a friend or as a lover or whatever, right? And that takes something out of the receptivity?
1: Right. But I thought of it this way.
4: Um... I also want to start a family, and I also want to have you know um, enough money to stay with the child like for the first two years, like you were saying in the, that philosophy podcast. But in order to even get there, I have to have a goal of making it to management position, something that I can slide back into after two years or three years, something that, that makes a little more money so that I can save, like all these other first goals that have – Don't seem to have anything to do with
1: you know my end goal.
0: And why do you want a child?
1: Because I want to share.
4: I want to give something that I never got. I want to. I want to share. I, I want to create
1: a world that I never had. Right. Now you understand that's, that's a, a little bit about you, right? Hmm. I, I don't know how it couldn't be somewhat about me.
0: Well, but that's a lot about you, right? To, to give some to the child something you never had is defining the child's like what you have to give by, by an absence or a deficiency or oh. the presence of something negative, right?
1: All right. Well, I guess I've
4: never really thought about this question that much.
0: And I think that's important. I'm. I'm not saying have a kid or don't have a kid. I mean, I. I think they're fantastic, of course, right? But I think that um, uh, it's something to to think about, right?
1: Right. Yeah. It's. I'll have to think about that more. Now,
0: I, I would suggest. I mean, the the goal that I've had. It doesn't have to be your goal, of course, right? I mean, but, but you said since this is successful, um, you know, what was my goal? My goal is, is simply to get people excited about philosophy. That's, that's all I'm doing. That's all I'm about. And to get people excited about philosophy means that it has to be real. It has to be something that has an impact on their daily lives. It has to be something that's achievable.
1: And it has to be something that's powerful.
0: And I'm not there to teach anybody any fundamentally any conclusions. I'm not there to teach anybody fundamentally even any principles. What I am there is to get people engaged in the act of thinking about thinking. Because that's what philosophy is. is thinking about thinking, right? right. Because you can think about stuff that's not philosophical. Philo- philosophy, like how do I get downtown, right? <laughs> you need to think about that, but that's not philosophy. Philosophy is thinking about thinking. and And I think that's where the greatest power is. To change the world, right? Because if we don't know what we're thinking, we just end up acting out, as we've listened to in these a variety of these uh, interviews lately. So I just want to get people to
1: get excited about thinking about thinking.
0: And if that's your goal, is just to get people excited about thinking about thinking, if that's a worthwhile goal, then you can try that on.
1: Because it allows you to focus on the other person, right?
4: I don't know that I can forget the final goal. <laughs> like,
0: I'm I don't know you that I can forget the, the other goal. goals. I'm not saying that you forget the final goal. But what I'm saying is that if, you, if you're going into a four-year college degree, you don't sit there every day and think about graduation, right? You say, I've got this assignment. I've got this assignment. I've got to go to this class. I've got to do this homework. I've got to read this book. I've got to write that essay. I've got to take this exam and so on, right? It's a series of steps. Now, of course, it's all towards the end goal. But you're thinking about each step not focusing only on the end goal, because otherwise you won't get there, right? I mean, if you sit around at a college degree daydreaming about graduation, you're not going to graduate,
1: right? Right. So
0: I'm not saying that you have to go out and make people, because you can't, interested in philosophy, but I think if you're enthusiastic about philosophy as a discipline, as the discipline, it's not just a discipline, it's the discipline, because everything, that is good in life comes out of thinking about thinking, because otherwise we're just doing random shit that we've inherited from culture and prejudice and
1: history. But if you're looking for people
0: who are interested or have the potential to be excited about philosophy and you yourself are excited about philosophy, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether they've heard of FDR or Aristotle or Rand or Plato or Kant or Hegel or Schopenhauer or any of these people, right? Right. Right. I mean they they can work in a donut factory right but are they excited or curious or interested in thinking about thinking
4: I think I'm ambivalent about that
0: Right and look it may it may not be anything that will be of value to you I'm just sharing what what my goal is
1: There there was um
4: some some there's this thing I always hear that it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And I just like, uh, I was expressing just how annoying this advice has been for me to my therapist. But there are people that will tell you this paradoxical way of thinking like you will meet someone when you're not looking. Oh yeah. But But that's the most annoying thing in the entire world because I can't, not look. If my oh,
0: goal, I, I agree with you. Like, <laughs> they say no they say to... this. To, they say this to couples who are having trouble conceiving as well. You'll you'll get pregnant when you're not thinking about it. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> How so could I that happen? Not, right? Want to have a kid? Sure. You want to have a kid. Can't turn that off. Right? But so right. I agree with you. I agree with you for sure. I agree with you for sure. That's like saying you'll get a job when you're not looking. No, you won't. Right? Because nobody's going to come past your house and say, hey, I hear you have a resume that might be of use to me, so come on board, right? Right. Yeah, you have to be looking for a job to get a job. Yeah, you have to be looking for someone to get someone. I agree with that. All right. So, that's like that- me saying, I'll have a I'll have a successful show about philosophy the moment I stop trying to have a su- 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 successful show about philosophy. Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, take right. your zen lower... <laughs> intestine pretzel and shove it with anyway go on
1: well um
4: like this this whole idea sort of stemmed from a conversation with greg g and also before that long before that from a conversation with you about a philosophy group that i was in going to in Houston, that guy that was like kind of a relativist.
0: Yeah. Um, I like that. Kind of a relativist.
4: Kind of a, yeah. kind yeah. of a, he's not an absolute,
0: yeah. he's not absolutely a relativist because then he would explode. But anyway.
4: <laughs> right. And so you were like, well, why don't you create your own? And so, but but if know, you're doing it, it, it to meet, me to
0: meet someone, right, but you can RTR that mother, right? So you right. can say at the meetup group, um, I'm single and I'm looking right? And and if you're interested, fantastic. If not, no problem. We'll we'll talk about philosophy, but
1: I've just, you know, let's get that up front, right?
4: That's an interesting thought experiment there.
1: Look, if
0: you want somebody who's interested in directness and honesty, that's the way to find them, right? And if somebody's offended by that, then it's like, okay, well, we just talk about philosophy and, and that's it, right? But if they're offended right. by somebody saying, I'm interested in a romantic relationship, And uh, if you are too, let me know. And you know, whatever, right? But that's just being direct,
1: right? That's pretty blunt. That's pretty blunt, right? I mean, but you know, frankly, in your
0: 30s, you know, time is time pressing, right? Like, you don't, if you're looking for a job, you phone them up and you say, I want a job, not, would you like to meet to network?
4: Right. That's a good
0: point. And if they're a fed, well, what do you mean you want a job? That's very, you know, that's very uh, uh, presumptuous of you. It's like, okay, well, I want a job, but not with you,
1: right? Right. You know, yeah, uh, the
0: good thing about being in your 30s is just, you don't have to beat, beat around the bush anymore, right? You don't You don't have to be coy. You don't have to, you know, because time's pressing. It's like... What's, there's an old joke, I, some, some comedian used to make this joke, you know, where she's something like, uh, New York Subways, you know, it's, it's great. You basically, it's so tight, you know, you basically stand there with your, you end up saying to some guy, hey, now that we've had our groins mashed together for the last half hour, want to start a family? <laughs> something like right. that. Right. And, uh, but there's something that's kind of true about that, right? I mean, why not just be direct?
1: I have been contemplating that for yeah, you've a You've been while contemplating now. directness. It, look, it's it's it will it will it will, um, it will cut, an, matter, right?
4: It will, and I, I recognize the rational. I, I'm getting that, like I understand the rationality behind that, and it makes all the sense in the world. But I'm scared to death of it.
0: Oh, I totally understand that. I, I totally understand that, and I am too. I mean you think it's fun for me to say please send me money to you know every 10th podcast or whatever I don't like it but but it's what I have to do right I mean it's it's the responsible thing to do um for for the success of what I think is the most important conversation in the world right so I have to do it right uh it's uh, it's not fun to make cold calls it's not fun to ask someone out with the possibility of rejection it's not fun for any of these things and directness and bluntness certainly isn't fun because lots of people get upset by directness and bluntness uh, and the reason for that, I believe, is just I think we're born very direct and blunt. Certainly, I'm learning a lot about directness and bluntness from my daughter, who is very direct and blunt. Um, I, so I think we're born that way. I just think that directness and bluntness gets kind of pounded out of us because we're just not allowed to have clear opinions and to be, quote, demanding. Right. I mean, I was, I I was I the, uh, sorry, just to just to give you an example of that. I was at the library the other day um, with uh, with Izzy. And she's in a, a reading group. She can't read, obviously, but she's in a sort of point and and say things and bang on tambourines and blow bubbles kind of group. And she was in there for a while, and then she got kind of bored. And I try to make a big point of smiling and waving at all the children because, you know, frankly, they all seem kind of inert, right? I think that they seem kind of spaced out. You know, like you and you go to the mall. I mean, Izzy's running around leaving footprints on the ceiling, and most of the other kids are wedged in there strollers just staring off into space with bits of dribble coming out of their lips so i try to make this sort of big point to smile at the kids and i do feel very friendly towards kids and i like them so i smile even
1: yeah
0: and and so the kids will gravitate towards me if their own particular caregivers and sometimes it's nannies there sometimes it's it's moms it's almost never dads right but um and they're sort of warm to me and they'll they'll come over and they'll want to say and of course isabella is very friendly and and she's high and she's all that and uh um, and so we were in this uh, class and there was this girl who was, uh, I think about two, maybe two and a half. And she was uh, hanging around with uh, Izzy and I, and her mom was, seemed kind of cold and angry. It was wearing army pants. I don't know what that means, but I just remember that as a sort of vivid detail. And Isabel at one point wanted to go out of the room. She just got kind of bored with the sing songs and she, she wanted to go out of the room. And uh, do things in the main library area. And this was a sort of a separate room. And so we, we went out. And the girl who was a little older, whose mom seemed kind of cold and angry, followed us out. And the mom sort of just grabbed her, really grabbed her and held her. And, and she burst into tears. I mean, I think that was kind of humiliating. That's
4: tragic.
0: And anyway, she did make it out. And, uh, I wasn't, I didn't intervene at this point. Uh, I, and we don't have to sort of go into, into why, but I didn't intervene at this point. And I did sort of give some real sympathetic looks towards and went, Oh, towards, uh, towards the girl who was, you know, busy trying to get away from her mom and, and make a break for it. And when the mom scooped up the girl, and she was just sort of white-lipped and really angry and strode back into the um, into the reading room. She just turned to me and she hissed. And she was like, ah, she is so high maintenance. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's like... you—you you know, High maintenance? It? It's like, high maintenance? <laughs> you grabbed her. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You're high maintenance. Anyway, we don't have to sort of get into what happened to the aftermath or anything like that. But But the purpose, what I'm trying to say is that in this uh, in this situation, the girl was expressing a clear preference, right? The little girl that she wanted to to come out and play with us. I mean, I end up with when I'm at the library, I end up with kids rolling all over me, and I, they just like to play because I'm sort of very, uh, I sort of get down on the ground and and play with them. And I mean, of course, I work in a daycare, so I have lots of experience with this. So so she wanted to come out and to play with us. So she expressed a clear desire, and she got kind of, I'm not going to say attack, but she got kind of roughly handled for that, and her mom got really, really angry. So how long is it going to take for that kid to be bluntness-averse, to be direct-averse, to be open and honest expression of preferences-averse when it gets her into that kind of trouble? And, and wow. we, we know, that right? You and I know lot. what That's, that history yeah. is, right? So directness of expression, if we fear that it causes parental attack, or directness of expression in a church how well does that go down with the priest or directness of expression you know you're in a you're in a, a school classroom and you're bored what happens if you put your hand up and say i'm bored <laughs> right i mean you know if if you're yeah. if you're if you're the the wiggles or something you're some children's group and you go around and all the children are bored you're out of a job right if the children stick up their hand and say, I'm bored, you're like, I'm so sorry. Let's try a different song. Let's try something else because, you know, we're supposed to be here to entertain and enlighten you. So if Sesame Street was completely boring, it would be off the air, right? But in, in schools, you can't stick your hand up and say, I'm bored. Because what happens? You get labeled a troublemaker. You might go to the principal's office or you might end up getting drugged, right?
4: Or tied down and thrown
0: in a yeah. prison or Yeah, or thrown into these, uh, these god-awful uh, solitary confinement cells, right? So I'm just trying to say that I totally understand that fear, and I feel it too. Uh, it's not natural to us. It's just, just the result of early trauma, which doesn't mean that just because it's explainable that you can just snap your fingers and overcome it. But I'm I'm a big fan of the opposite, you know, as you know, right? I mean... The,
4: the uh, Costanza approach. Yeah,
0: if everything I do is wrong, if every instinct that I have is wrong, then the opposite of that must be the right thing to do, right? So I'm drawn to to that which I'm anxious about. and. I am you know constantly anxious about what i'm doing on on the shows, right? I mean the people gonna like the interviews in this direction of people gonna like my new novel Are people going right? it's it's you know trying to keep kind of trying to keep h how- d hyperbots entertained It's a challenge let me tell you fifteen hundred podcasts so um so it, it's how a, do a you, how do you tell the
4: difference though? How do you tell the difference between a gut feeling of anxiety around someone being a danger sign versus the feeling of anxiety being around fear of being direct. I guess. Well, that's
0: No, I, I think so you're right. I mean, it's a good question, but the, the two standards that I have is one voluntarism. is the relationship voluntary. So if the relationship is voluntary, then I can be direct. And if the person gets upset, I can just not be with that person. Right.
1: Right.
0: Right. So a relationship that's not totally voluntary would be my neighbor, for instance. Right. Right. Like, he's my neighbor, I'm his neighbor, so whatever. We may have differences of values, but, you know, I'm not going to sit there and pick fights with him because it's not a voluntary relationship. Or my boss, right? It's not a particularly voluntary relationship insofar as it's a lot of hassle to to change jobs, just as it is, as it is a lot of hassle to move. But if it's a, if it's a coffee shop or if it's, a, you know, place where I'm, you know, can be honest and it's not can, it doesn't really interfere with any semi-voluntary relationships, then uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. And the other thing, too, is is, is around virtue. Right? I mean, it's around that little thing we call honesty, right? Am I being honest?
1: Right. But, oh, right.
4: With myself, at least. I'm not even, I don't think even in some of these situations, I'm being honest with myself. (laughs)
0: Well, well, certainly, you—you you know, you, as Polonius says to Hamlet, "Above all, to to thine own self be true, for then it shall follow as night follows day. That canst not be false to any man." Right. So, for sure, you have to know the truth in yourself before you can express it to others.
4: I mean, there's, there's, I think I have a fairly wide range of of what I find attractive. <laughs> like, there's at least ten people I think are attractive on every city block. So. It's not.
0: (laughs) Maybe maybe I sidles up to a freshly glistening uh, fire hydrant and hey, how you doing? (laughs)
1: Especially the I like him nobly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's very cool.
4: Right, right. Um, But like, I'll I'll see someone on a bus. I think is attractive, but I, I just I'm so afraid. Like, what do I say? I have no idea. What? How am I supposed to be direct? But I guess you know, just being bluntly direct like that.
0: Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, it. you know, I wouldn't necessarily do that on a bus, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, unless it's your like, mate's tolerance is a lot higher than mine. I just, I think that could be a little alarming. I, I think it's okay if you sort of got together people for a group or whatever and and uh, and so on. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like you announce it, but um, it's okay to, to let that information come out. I just wouldn't, you know, go up to somebody on a bus and say, you know, I, I really want kids. Uh, let me check your teeth.
4: <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. Then that's the,
1: I think that's the frustration
4: with, with, with this because.
0: But the other thing, sorry, the other thing too, is that it's, it's okay to be, it's okay to approach people and it's okay to be honest and look for the obvious things. Is she wearing a ring or does she have a large tattooed biker head next to her or whatever? Right. Um, Right. But uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's okay. I mean, as long as, you know, you're honest and say, I'm completely anxious about this and I really don't do this, but, you know, you seem, I mean, I, I've done it sort of in restaurants and so on. If I've met a, saw a woman that I was, who was eating alone, who I, I thought was interesting, um, I would uh, I would go up and talk to her. And it's not easy. I mean, your heart is in your mouth the whole time, but, um, right. I mean, if it was e- easy, then everybody would do it, right? And and there would be uh, nobody available for anyone, right? So.
4: Right, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't be still uh, tackling this
3: problem.
1: All
4: right. Um, well, I think you've given me some good ideas about how to go about this. I, I don't think I'll stop. I think the meetups are still a good thing no matter what. And
1: yeah, just go, go there I'm, and I'm excited like about to to- Yeah, I would just I, say. I, I do go, en-
3: go ahead.
4: I do ahead. enjoy talking about philosophy with. Just anybody, you know, especially if they're new to it or, right. or anything like that. I like introducing the ideas seeing if they're interested. Um, but you got to ask I'll...
0: questions, right? I mean, why not just say, what is philosophy to you? What does it right. mean? Why are you here? You know, what, uh, what's your interest? What's your experience? Just ask a whole bunch of questions, right?
4: Yeah, that's what we did the first meetup. We went around the table, asked that exact question.
0: Right, and then you can ask it every week, right? I mean, has your definition of philosophy changed? Well, what does philosophy mean to you this week that's different from when you first came here?
1: Huh. I didn't think of that angle. Because, I mean, if it hasn't changed at all, then it's not really, you know, nobody's making any progress, Right. Right.
0: Anyway, if, if you don't mind, I think I think we have another caller or two, and I do want to move sure, on. And sure. I certainly do appreciate that. It is a challenge oh, what, you're, so much. what you're working on, but uh, I think that uh, if you uh, if you stick with it and really try and figure out what your goals are and are as honest as you can sort of stand in the moment, I think that will really help.
4: Oh, yeah. Thanks so much.
0: You're welcome, man. Keep us posted. All
1: right. All right. Bye. Call, cool, there'll be another listener half. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. You're welcome, man. Keep us posted. All right. Hello? Hey, I'm on uh, please turn off the streamer. On your end? Yes, Mandy. Yeah, turn to us. All right. You have a question. Hey, Stefan. Hi.
5: Um, okay, it's Mendy's calling. Um, I just had a couple of questions about um the whole anarchy uh about the police. And um and how that would work. Um, I was just wondering you had this whole idea which was really interesting about checks and balances. You're saying that in the free market, um, policemen would have to have uh, basically if, if you were the person selling this security firm, then what checks and balances would you put into uh your, you know, security branch and stuff like that, right? Right. Um so basically I, I was just wondering why that can't happen right now. Um, as in, in our current system, we can kind of, since there's going to be corruption in any systems because it's a place of power, um, so basically I, th- I think that we kind of have that power to um, inst- instill the checks and balances right now. Uh, of course, you know, it's not going to be put in there because they're trying to make more money or trying not to lose customers. It's going to be put in there because you can kind of, you know, where we own the government and the police and stuff like that. Right, right. Okay. um I'm basically, like, in the bias stuff, like, like we have nowadays, there was a bunch of stuff recently about, you know, how like, uh, you know, white, black, stuff like that, about how policemen were acting biased, so they stuck in more checks and balances. You explained that there are more things that, that are necessary and you need more checks and balances, there is isn't always corruption. Um, so just like we can think creatively and, and kind of, you know, professors and people like that can kind of come up with beautiful ideas to get these checks and balances, since we own the police and we own the government, we should be able to come up with that stuff now and instill that there you know, shouldn't really be an issue. What's exactly the issue with doing it
0: now? Right. That's a great question. And uh, just what I thought was kind of funny, though, nothing to do with what you said. Um, I thought you said mm-hmm. that they had a problem with diversity, so they had more chicks and balances. Uh, which I thought,
3: kind of <laughs> I, just, no, I, just, no, I just, I know okay, I heard, I heard
0: it here, and guys. then I, I understood. I just pointed out. And if you could just turn off your, uh, your speakers while I talk, that'd be great because it's getting be a bit of an echo, but sure. okay. So checks and balances. Um, there is an argument and I think this is the argument that you're making, uh, which is that the government is just another kind of free market. Uh, and just in the same way that consumers have a say in what manufacturers produce, by what we buy and what we don't buy and so on we have a say in what the government does as voters is that sort of what you're saying that it's kind of like a free market exactly. that we can uh, we can make that uh, that decision right
5: correct exactly
0: all right now let me let me put to you a, a question because if if it's true that there's fundamentally no difference between uh, a free market and uh, a government market then do you think that it would be reasonable for the government to assign you a wife? And if you didn't like your wife, you could petition to become the head of the government wife-assigning ministry. And you could then, after years of effort and tens of millions of dollars of of money spent and years of consistent effort, you might have the chance to get... um, a divorce from your wife, Uh, but you would have to give up just about everything else in your life to pursue that. And only you could get that permission. Other people couldn't. Uh, Would you, would you think that would be a good system? And would that be fundamentally different from what we have right now, where you can date whatever you want, whoever you want?
5: Mm Okay. So you think that there are many different, um, there are many different powers Mm -hmm. that be fundamentally different
0: from what we have right now. I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I'm still, a, still getting an echo. You need to turn off
5: the speakers? Yes, yeah, I turned it off. I turned it off. Okay. Um, so, as I, 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 I understand you, um, basically you're saying that there are certain powers that the police have right now that they shouldn't even have to begin with, that we shouldn't have to change them.
0: Look, here, here's the here's the fundamental difference between the state and the free market. In the free mm-hmm. market, it is a positive action that I need to take in order to support a product or a service, right? So if I like iPods, I I have to get off my couch, I have to jump in my car, or I have to take the bus, I have to go to a store, and I have to go and buy an iPod, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to take positive action in order to support a particular uh, product or a service, right? Correct. Okay. If I don't get off my couch, Apple doesn't get a dime of my money, right? Right. Now, the difference is so so in order to not support something that I don't like, I don't have to do anything. In other words, the barrier to entry to not mm. supporting something in a free market is zero. Zero energy,
1: mm-hmm. zero effort, right? Right.
0: Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah definitely. Now, if I want to support something in the government, like if I want to change the curriculum in the schools or I want to have more checks and balances in the police, the barrier to Mm -hmm. entry to doing that is almost unimaginably high, right?
5: Not necessarily. It depends how many people want that change. Um, if we find me just real quick, um, let's say, no, no, no sorry. The, the, let's just stay.
0: I'm sorry market. to interrupt, but let's, let's stay okay. on one example. I just want to stay on one example and then we can move on if we want. Okay.
1: But okay. let's say
0: okay. there are lots of people in the U S who want lower taxes, right? There are these tea, tea parties and so on. Right. And my apologies to the tea parties, I refer to them as tea baggers accidentally. I was thinking of <laughs> baggers uh, and, uh, I made that mistake. So I'm sorry for those who heard that. That was uh, my error. Um, anyway, so, um, uh, so so they're all meeting and they're lobbying and they're writing to Congress and people gave what, 20 or 25 million dollars to the Ron Paul campaign and they were out there at dawn handing out flyers and they put you know, millions and millions of hours and tens of millions of dollars and so on into supporting all of this and that's going to be the case no matter how popular something is because when you want to do something that is a change within the government, you have to put in a huge amount of effort, partly because of the inertia of the system and also partly because you're fighting against entrenched interests who are profiting from the status quo. So if you want to improve the police force, you're going to run straight into the government union and you're going to run straight into every cop who's on the take from drug dealers and from pimps and prostitutes. And you're going to run into every cop who's stealing some of the drugs that he's stealing from people and selling them again on the market. And you're going to run into every cop who likes abusing his power and throwing his weight around. I'm not saying these are every cop, but there's obviously quite a few of them, right? So not only are you going to have to put out a huge amount of effort in order to try and make a change, which is not at all the case in the free market, but you're also going to be Mm -hmm. fighting against incredibly entrenched and well-funded interests, right? So like in, in New York at the moment, I think it is, in Albany, I think, they're trying to fire the entire teaching staff of a school where less than 7% yes. of the grade 11 students have passed basic math and literacy tests, which is to me right. is ridiculous. I mean, if you get 7% on any test, you fail. And so if you're teaching kids and they only get 7% on the test, clearly you failed. And they're trying to fight. That's why they're doing it. But they're trying to fire these people, and now the union is going to kick in and it's going to bring a lawsuit against people and it's going to tie them up for years in court, and, and you won't be able to fire these people because they have contracts and uh there are there are these rubber rooms in New York where they spend tens of millions of dollars a year paying teachers to just show up and do nothing because they can't fire them the The procedures to to fire a teacher go on for years and literally hundreds of pages right so in in the mm-hmm. government system, not only do you have to put in thousands and thousands or millions of hours and tens of millions of dollars to to get anything changed if you even can. No matter how many people are behind it, because even if 51% or 60 or 80% of people are behind it, the difference is that you are fighting to get, say, let's say that you could change something in the government that was going to reduce your taxes 5%. Well, you do that by firing, let's say, 5% of the government workers. So what happens is you have Mm -hmm. an incentive that is about 5% of your income, but the people on the side of the government, they have an incentive called 100% of their income. So they're going to fight a hell of a lot harder than you will ever have a motivation to fight to keep 100% of their income, whereas you only have an incentive to fight for 5% of your income, right? So the, the, the fundamental imbalance of the system – I'm sorry?
3: Is this proven?
0: Well, that's, asking, this is a mathematical is this fact. the way it works? But this is a mathematical fact, right? Like if you want to privatize the post office, you might save yourself 1% of your, your tax income but there will be Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people who will be losing their jobs and their pensions, and they're going to fight like crazy, right? I mean, that's just a a fact of incentives, right?
5: Is there enough people to fight it? Because I, I think the way democracy is set up, it shouldn't be as hard as you're explaining to
0: me. Well, no, but the problem is that everyone, everything that you fight in the government is only a small portion of that which oppresses you, no matter what you take on. It's only a small portion of that which oppresses you, but it is a 100% of the income of tens of thousands of people, and they're going to fight to the death almost to hang on to that income to In all of the benefits that they have. I'm sorry. That, they, that's
5: impossible, though, because the way that democracy is set up. You, you, you go back to that post office example. Let's say uh, they write a home news article all over the New York Times and all over the world, that all over America, let's say, that uh, you save five percent of your tax income if you get if you privatize the post office, for example. Right. So let's say eighty percent of America decides that privatizing the post office. It'll change overnight in a couple of days. No, right? it
0: won't change overnight. I guarantee you it won't change overnight.
5: If they fight, I'm saying you just go, everyone votes their representatives or whatever the way it works. They go up to the Senate and they make this bill. It, it, I, that's um, my understanding of it, wasn't it? No, and, um, no, no, no. no, matter how many work in this post office, that's not enough to fight 80% of America.
0: Well, okay, but what, hap- what are the post? What, are the, what is the post office union going to do? If if they see... They can't do anything. They're too little. Of course they can. Well, do you Are you not reading what's happening in Greece right now? They're shutting down the hospitals. They're shutting down the schools. They're shutting down the Postal Service. I mean, if I'm the Postal Service Union... Sorry, it sounds like I'm yelling at you. I'm, I'm not. But if I'm the Postal Service Union, and I want to protect my members' jobs, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop delivering welfare checks. The moment I stop delivering welfare checks the government is going to face a revolution, and that the government is going to back down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you understand?
5: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I guess that's so kind of... Sorry, kind of let me just say, it's, it same
0: sorry, it's the same thing with the public school teachers. If I'm going to talk about privatizing schools, the public school teachers are all going to go on strike. And that means that the economy collapses, because there's no place to park the children during the day, which means that, The people, parents have to stay home, which means that the economy is going to collapse. So the government is going to immediately reverse that. There's just no way that they're going to listen because they they have to get their taxes in every week, right? Otherwise, they go bankrupt. So uh, there's just no way because you have to think about what the public sector unions are going to do when faced with privatization. They're going to disrupt and destroy the services that is completely essential to... um, uh, it's completely essential to the functioning of the society and that way the government is and everyone is going to back down because they're going to say look i mean we can't have uh, and and the media is going to run all these pictures of welfare children starving because the welfare checks aren't being delivered and right and people are just this the government won't uh, won't allow it to happen
3: so if
5: they privatized the police, for example, you're saying they'd be causing mass riots and they just have these stories of these people, you know, robbing banks and things like that because the police would just be so upset about losing their jobs.
0: If, the, um, uh, if they talked about privatizing the police, then mm-hmm. um, if I were the head of the police union, the first thing that I would do is I would say, I am no longer going to arrest anyone for non-payment of taxes.
5: The government will back down immediately.
0: Well, the government will immediately wow. back down, right? Because
5: they have no money left to collect.
1: They have no money, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of political mm-hmm. power. It's, democracy is, is meaningless, right? Because what really happens is that the, um, the government workers control so much of the uh, essential things. I mean, here in Canada, they tried to cut a few tiny little subsidies to the farmers, and the farmers all took Mm -hmm. their goddamn tractors and drove at five miles an hour in rush hour along the major highways. The government backs right down. It's like, fuck that, right? We we can't have people not being able to get to work because then we don't get any money.
5: Right. Right. Okay, I understand that. Um, but what about if you're saying that even uh, back to back to like uh, small changes you're seeing that huge changes getting from President opinion. Let's say just about installing more checks and balances, isn't to get rid of more corruption? Because as you were explaining so all, often, the um basically checks and balances are the kind of the instances of stopping corruption.
0: Uh, yes, but voluntary checks and balances. What that means is competition, Correct. right, and consumer choice and that you don't get anybody's penny unless they get off their couch this is so essential right if if mm-hmm. if people get my money whether i if i if i just sit on my couch nobody gets a dime they have to actively mm-hmm. work to sell something to me otherwise they don't get a penny that's the complete opposite of they get my money whether i sit on the couch or not then they don't have to sell anything to me they don't have to satisfy me they don't have to get me to do something they don't have to win me over they don't have to compete against anybody else Mm -hmm. right that that barrier to entry is really 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 important right i mean apple has to write commercials they have to get rock stars to to wear the ipods they have to you know get funky uh, songs uh, they have to do all this really really cool stuff to get you to buy stuff they have to make you do something through incentives the government doesn't have anything like that the government just takes your money no matter what you do
5: what about policemen what about? I Policemen are really trying. To, the policemen, they're really trying to install more checks and balances, aren't they? But what With do you mean checks and video, balances? There are a bunch of different things.
0: What do you mean checks and balances? Give me an example.
5: Uh, I, I, mean, I don't mean in the way that you meant. I, I don't mean. It. I, I said that's one type of checks and
0: balances. Okay, I'm who is, who is really... going to police the police? Are you going oh, to that's invent that's a second police? Who will, watch, who will watch? the? Who will watch the watchmen? Right. <laughs> there, there is no answer, like to an answer, answer, answer to that so, question. There's no answer to the question who will watch the watchman, which is why you can't have a government. There's no way that the police are going to police themselves. Because if people can police themselves, we don't need the police. Then, if people can't police themselves, we can't have the police, at least the state police, the statist police. There is no answer to the question who will watch the watchers, which means that we have to have a stateless society. There is no answer to that question. Any answer that anybody comes up with immediately gets corrupted by special interest groups, money, and the fundamental evil of statism, which is violence, the initiation of violence. There is no way that the state will ever police itself. There is no way that the police force will ever police itself. I mean, the stuff that goes on here in Canada is crazy. Policemen who've been brutally videotaped or videotaped brutally beating people up are still on the force or they're suspended with full pay. And the investigations in some of these cases have literally been going on for years and years and years. And nobody's ever been our fired. fault? I'm sorry?
5: Is, is that our fault? As in, uh, as, as uh, you were saying before, that we have some sort of a say in the government, meaning that the fact that we are still on the force is because we're not making enough of a ruckus. A ruckus. But the
0: yeah. government doesn't care about us. The government cares about the police, because the police get the money. Right? Mm-hmm. right. Do you understand? The government is not going to cross yeah. the police, because if the government doesn't have the enforcers who are willing to shoot us for non-payment of taxes, the government has no money. The government will always care mm-hmm. about the enforcers. Right? It's like, it's like mm-hmm. asking a farmer to care more about the cows than the electric fence that keeps them in. Well, no. Mm-hmm. The only reason he cares about the cows is because he can keep them fenced in. Mm-hmm. So it, the ruckus doesn't matter. The government doesn't care about us. Doesn't They don't care if we march. They don't care if we write block. As long as we're afraid of going to jail and we will pay the money in order to be, quote, free, that's all they care about. They don't care about
1: our opinions. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Um, and how about the DLOs? Can we stick that into the system now, and then kind of slowly get rid of these, um, all types of like um, court system? I personally have taken someone to court, uh, small claims court, and I used a mediator. And that was I, I had listened to your show so much, and you were just saying about how it takes so it's impossible to take them to court. And so, I was inspired by that I did the mediator, thing, and it was so much better than any court, even idea of a court. So I'm thinking, why don't we stick the DROs in now? Is that even a possibility? Because it's basically using credit card type of idea and passports, you know, that type of thing. It's like using a eBay feedback system in the current you know, world so you can you know trust better and have yeah. better insurances and stuff.
0: Well, look, there are already myriads of DROs in the, in the world as it stands, right? I mean, eBay okay. is the world's largest employer, so to speak. And they have a completely nonviolent and international system of resolving disputes. So there are already DRO systems in the world already. As you say, there are mediators, right? Uh, there are mediators that are used in, in everything from commercial disputes to contract disputes to marital disputes to custody disputes. Mediators are very common. There is a, – a, you could even think of a marriage counselor as a kind of DRO, right? Because they have a non-coercive way of attempting to get people to avoid – divorce or at least divorce less expensively. And I would certainly thoroughly recommend to anybody who's in that kind of situation go to see a marriage counselor. Either you can save your marriage, which is going to save you a huge amount of time and money and pain. Or if you are going to get divorced, you can do it in a non a, a much less adversarial manner, which again is going to save you huge amounts of time and money and pain. So DRO systems are are very powerful uh, in the world and they are non violent ways of arbitrating disputes psychotherapy is a kind of DRO um because it is a way of helping you to resolve disputes in a non-coercive manner disputes that you have with your family or with your lovers or with your children and so on so um i would say that um uh, it is, uh, DROs are everywhere. Uh, I mean, if people want to start another DRO, I think that's great. I mean, <laughs> the the Free Domain Radio Message Board is a kind of DRO, right? I mean, it's a non-coercive way right. of uh, resolving disputes and keeping the peace among a group of highly intelligent and right. sometimes volatile people, right?
5: Definitely. I mean, I'm a religious man. And, uh, I come on that thing and we're kind of going on, they're attacking me with like, you know, pink cows and stuff, but they explain things rationally and also that type of idea. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, But do you think it's possible, I don't think anyone likes violence except for, you know, people that make money off it, but um, do you think it's possible if we would make big DROs, etc., would that slowly kick out Biden and uh, all these necessary violences
3: and stuff like that?
0: Well, no, no, of course not, because, um, I mean, governments have the guns, right? So if the DRO gets too successful, the government would just shut them down, right?
5: Why would they do that? It's cheaper to run a DRO than to run a police force, as we discussed.
0: Well, because uh, the government needs the police force to collect the taxes, right? So if the police force gets pissed off, right, then the police force will threaten to go on strike, just as the garbage men go on strike, just as the doctors go on strike, and uh, everybody conforms, right? So if DROs get too Mm -hmm. successful, right, in other words, if – uh, um, well, first of all, if DROs get too successful, the government doesn't care as long as it isn't interfering with people paying their taxes, right?
5: Why would we need to pay our taxes if we can use a DRO to make growth?
0: Well, because the government, the government's just going to keep collecting the taxes anyway, right? The government, uh, like let, let's say that 99% of the population goes to a DRO rather than the, to the court system. The government mm-hmm. is still just going to keep collecting taxes to pay the court, right? Because because if the moment that it tries okay. to stop doing that, what's going to happen is the judges are all going to say, well, we're just going to turn all the criminals loose. We're going to grant pardons. We're going to turn all the hardened criminals out on the streets, and everyone's going to panic, and then they'll get their money, right?
5: Mm-hmm. Okay, and one one more thing on this topic. Um, I was trying to explain to my friend this whole idea of privatizing uh, police and He said, well, what are you going to do with all the criminals? Um, you know, if he's just going to let them all out, then what's going to be stopping them from moving into our neighborhoods, etc.?
0: Well, first of all, he's defining the police as non-criminals, which I find un- untrue, right? The first thing we're going to do with the criminals is take away their badges and their guns, right? That's the first thing right. we're going to do with the criminals, and that, I think, is a damn good thing. The second thing is, Definitely. who's to say they're even criminals? I mean, half the people in the in jail in the United States are there for completely non-violent, made-up, imaginary offenses, Right, mm-hmm. like, like what, they had some drugs on them, so what, who cares, right, right. oh, my God, they gambled, yeah. so what, who cares, Oh, my God, they went to a prostitute, well, that's unsavory, but it's not immoral, it's not evil, right, right. um, right. or they didn't pay their taxes, well, that's not a crime that's you know it's not a real crime, it's just legislated right. as a crime right and and how many so of what the, about other, the real crimes, yeah, how many of the other people are in jail? because of bad laws, right? So how many drug addicts end up stealing because drugs are so expensive because they're illegal, right? If you rationalize the legal system, I bet you'd end up with about 10% of the existing prison population, if that, if that. And of course, the only way, as I talked in earlier in the show, the only way, in my opinion, a free society is ever going to come around is if we treat our children better. Well, then you're going to have a whole generation growing up with very little propensity for uh, violence, for drug addiction, for gambling, for other kinds of substance abuses, for drinking, for uh, dangerous uh, behaviors, for promiscuity, for early pregnancy, for STDs, for all of these things. And so you're going to grow up with a a generation that is not going to be – it's going to be like one-tenth of one percent of people maybe will be criminals, and they may just have chemical imbalances or schizophrenia or something like that or psychosis. Right, definitely. So it's it's a whole different world that uh, is going to be there, right? Um, you, you don't want to mistake the future for the past, right? So that would be my answer to the fellow.
5: Okay. And he said also, like, there's going be, like, gangs going. I I, I tried to tell him that whole thing about how, well, right now, the gangs go running around wild. So why would you think they're going to start going crazy? I said, what about in Texas? How often do gangs just start running around Texas shooting people? They would go for people that are weak or, I mean, like, they go to – you know, the nursing homes and stuff like that where they don't have guns. If everyone had guns, you know, you'd have these gangs going running wild. Well,
0: you know, no to, 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 uh, to, to put it bluntly, I mean, screw the Bloods and the Crips. What about the gang in Afghanistan? What about the gang yeah. in Iraq that have murdered over 100,000 civilians and caused the deaths of a million more?
5: They'll all be here though. And, they're, you know, I mean, they're violent people. You wouldn't they want to go and run wild over here? I, I mean, uh, you're, you're explaining that in history there has never been a statist government that worked, and that was a great, a great example. But at the same time, there hasn't really been an anarchist state that worked either. I mean, look at Haiti. That when, when the government was kind of thrown down for a bit, you know, everyone was just kind of looting and stuff, and all have Just recently, the were and stuff like that. Whenever there's kind of no government, people seem to go wild.
0: Well yeah but that's not that's not anarchy right a- anarchy is a is a philosophy a rational philosophy that's derived from the non aggression principle and the respect for property rights right i mean right. it's like saying that if you if you tie someone up and you torture him for 5 years straight mm-hmm. and then you loosen him out of his restraints and you set him free he's going to attack the guy probably who tortured him mm-hmm. and then you say well you see we can't let this guy free because he's so violent it's like no 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 He's violent because you (laughs) tied him up and you tortured him for five years, right? Right, right. So if you get looting in Haiti, it's because Haiti is a sick, disgusting, brutal dictatorship and has been for decades. And people Mm -hmm. know that the government is going to come back and they know they have five minutes to go and steal something. Otherwise, they're going to starve to death. Well, of course, they're going to do that. But it's not a failure of freedom. That's what happens when you treat people like animals, give them five minutes of freedom with which they can secure a possible survival for themselves and their children over the next few months. Of course, they're going to go and grab everything that they can. But that's not because there's a problem with freedom. It's because there's a problem with violence, with statist violence.
1: Well,
5: why would that not happen if it was anarchy? Well,
0: because... Anarchy doesn't come about if the government collapses any more than atheism comes about if someone blows up all the churches. Not that, of course, that I'm recommending either. But if, if if the churches all collapse tomorrow, that wouldn't mean that everybody understood the arguments for atheism. I mean, I guess it would be a good case for the fact that God existed and didn't like churches, but it wouldn't be. Nobody, nobody understands something because something else collapses. Like, if I watch a bridge collapse, I don't learn anything about engineering, right? Right. And so if the government collapses, this is the argument about Somalia too, right? It's not just Haiti. But if the government collapses, that's not suddenly like everybody suddenly understands philosophy and reasons from first principles. All, all that happens is something has collapsed. And so if, right. if chaos results from that, that is not an indictment against freedom because that is not
1: freedom. Right. Right. Okay. right that's okay. just the collapse
3: One last of-
5: thing on this topic. Um, he, said, he said also. Why don't sorry. Sorry. See? Just, just said, before you go, just
0: sorry. Just before you go on. Um, I just wanted to see if there was anybody because we're kind of running a little over time. I just wanted to see if there was anybody else uh, who had another question that they wanted to slip in just because we've been talking for quite a while. Yeah.
1: Sure. James, do we have somebody else?
2: Uh, we had one question from Sebastian. Um, I think he pasted it into the Skype chat if you want to take a look at that
0: about an hour ago okay that's a long question I might do that in a podcast but thank you for posting it Okay. Uh, somebody has said uh, you've learned that the bridge doesn't work if you watch a bridge collapse well not necessarily because the bridge could have been dynamited right? it could have had really subtle charges in the seams uh, or whatever right so uh, you don't know Uh, All you know is the bridge fell down. You don't know why, or you haven't learned anything about anything like that. So, so sorry, we can we can spend another minute or two. You had one more question, oh caller.
5: Yeah, Um, I want to know that. He's speeding on the highways. Um, So he said, "What's stopping you from speeding?" um, The police.
0: What's stopping him from speeding is the police. Is that right?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Red lights and all that.
0: Well, um, I think that speeding. I think speeding is a problem. Obviously you don't want people, I don't think you want people necessarily going 200 miles an hour um, down a city street. Right. I'm okay with that. Right.
5: But speeding is. I have a (laughs) motorcycle.
0: Right. Right. So you're definitely part of the problem. Right. But, but speeding is very easy to solve. Right. So for instance, if there are private roads, there will be GPS transmitters most likely. Right. Until something better is worked out. Right. So there's a, a private road that I used to take when I was commuting to work doing the early podcasts, and i i it beeped when I went on and it beeped when I went off right right now, if the speed limit is a hundred kilometers an hour, right mm-hmm. and I enter and then I exit ten kilometers later then if right. the, the company's going to immediately know if I sped right right because if, if I went there. Uh, faster than 100 kilometers an hour would get me there, then clearly I've been speeding, right? right. So that, to me, is how you control speeding. As you privatize the roads, there's GPSs. And then if you speed, you can't hide mm-hmm. it. Because speeding is ridiculous. Because you get pulled over to speeding maybe once a year or once every two years. It doesn't stop a lot of people from speeding, right?
5: Definitely.
0: Right, whereas if you had private roads, speeding... You just get billed for it. It's like, oh, you went over, so here's, you know, it's gonna, you're gonna have to pay forty bucks for going this fast, or you went really fast, that's two hundred bucks, or you went really, really fast, in which case you're not allowed on our roads anymore, right?
5: Mhm. And who so, guarantees that you're, you're screwed through I'm sorry. Who guarantees that he's not going to go on that road, or that he's going to pay the money? Because there's no government or police to enforce that.
0: Oh, I, I, I don't know, but. One of the things that that could happen. I mean, if I was um, uh, if I was uh, uh, the um, the road company, what I would do is I would try and get an arrangements with the gasoline companies and say, this guy is speeding. Uh, he's dangerous. Your children also drive on these roads, so let's not give gasoline to this guy, or make it tougher for him to get gasoline, or something like that. Uh, that's one right. possibility. Um, the other okay. thing too. I mean, that's just one possibility of uh, probably about a billion that you could uh, you could come up with. Um, Uh, Or what you could do is you could say, look, if you drive on my road, I am going to um, uh, inform your credit rating agency that you are not respecting your contract with me because you'd have to sign a contract that says if I speed double the speed limit, I'm banned from the road for a month. If I transgress that, then they have the right to send this off to your to your DRO. They have the right to send this off to your credit rating agency, which is going to lower your credit rating, which is uh, your contract rating, which is going to make it more expensive for you to buy and sustain yourself economically, and it's very quickly going to become not worth it, right? So there's, there's so many different ways that you can do it. Right,
5: right. Okay, awesome. That's really good. Thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. There's a, a can fantastic... You tell
5: me real quick. What, what was the thing about the tea, the tea, uh, the tea people? What, what, they spend lots of money to do what? Oh, no, the, the, really the tea party it. people,
0: they're all meeting, and they're all having these protests and so on, but I guarantee you that if they get a tax reduction, It is not going to be because of a reduction in the size and power of the government, because that's the Republican bullshit, right? The Republican bullshit is we're going to cut government, but what they end up doing is they end up cutting taxes, but not cutting government, right? The size of the federal government grew by two thirds under Ronald Reagan, and it also grew enormously under Bush. So they cut taxes, but all they're doing is screwing the future generations because they cut taxes and just borrow the difference. But they don't—they do not confront. Uh, any of the existing and entrenched public sector unions at all, I guess, with the uh, okay. with the exception that I think Reagan fired some air traffic controllers, right? But um, uh, so th- yeah, they may get a couple of they may get a couple of points shaved off the taxes. But what they really should be focusing on is cut spending, not cut taxes, because if you cut spending without cutting taxes, all you're doing is selling the children of the future, right? Right. Um,
5: wow, that's pretty crazy. Uh, how is, how does the government even able to do that? I mean if they don't have money, how are they able to spend like if they cut taxes then they just they have to cut down the government don't they
0: but they borrow they they either print the money in which case they drive up inflation in a couple of years or they borrow the money and the reason that they're able to the reason the American government is able to borrow the money is that China is very dependent upon the American consumer in order to mm-hmm. uh, to have its export industry right so um So what's happening is China lends money to the United States so that the United States can buy goods from China so that uh, the government can tax the expansion of business and that their citizens are kept relatively happy and so on. But, of course, it's all a Ponzi scheme and it's all going to come crashing down. Right.
5: Mm-hmm. So basically, your idea of this whole this, uh, Tea Party is that the Tea Party is one big sham, and it's just to cut taxes, but it doesn't actually help anything because uh, they're not cutting government, which is kind of just stupidity and just hurting the future generations. Okay, it's interesting.
0: Well, I'm not. I'm like not I love your imagination. I, I didn't say that it was all a sham. One, what I, I did say that it was all nonsense. I don't mean that everybody in it has bad intentions, but what I am saying is that I guarantee you that The government is not going to uh, privatise the post office based upon the Tea Party. What they will do is they might cut some taxes, but they won't cut any spending. In fact, spending will probably uh, increase. Yeah.
5: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, if you can just please uh, send me some information on that, because I'm writing a paper for my English on the people doing do Oh Wait, so
0: you want an hour-free lecture, and you also want me to dig up some information and send it to you? i tell you what. I'll give, <laughs> I'll give you the hour-free lecture, but I'm not going to give you uh, links as well. If you want, you can look on my website. There's some stuff there, but I'm not going to dig up some links and send them to you as well. Oh,
5: no, no. I meant from your website, of course. Okay, and
0: um, thank you so, so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the call. I was the- Fantastic, and uh, I think we're done for the week. Um, that really flew by, and uh, I would like to thank, thank, thank this. Do you, you guys are oh, you were so tasty, smart. I feel like I'm uh, supping from a buffet of giant, giant, big wetware brains every week, which is uh, just wonderful stuff. So thank you so much for your callers, uh, for these amazing and wonderful questions. Thank you for your support. Thank you for those who have signed up recently for subscriptions. I can't tell you how much. That is uh, helpful to me in terms of being able to plan um, how the giant money pit that is FDR gets to hoover up more of my cash. I really, really do appreciate that. And I think this week I'm going to um, release to more of the general general population uh, my uh, novel, Just Poor, which I think you will find uh, quite interesting and exciting. And please, if you have uh, heard it, uh, I have heard uh, some feedback, but not very much. The feedback that I've had has been very positive. But um, uh, remember. I am extremely, extremely needy and insecure. So please do uh, send me your uh, your feedback if you've had a chance to listen to the novel just Four. I would really, really uh, appreciate your feedback, both positive and negative, of course. So I hope that um, uh, you will uh, uh, let me know uh, what you think, so that I'm encouraged to continue reading it because I'm certainly enjoying it. But I, of course, I want to make sure that you are enjoying it uh, even even more. So uh, have yourselves a fantastic, wonderful, delicious, tasty, and excellent week. And uh, I will talk to you in one week, if not before.